Because I have three children, I've had plenty of experience with telling stories. When they were younger and bedtime arrived, the magic words, Daddy, tell me a story, would be like a siren song to my ears. It dared me to come up with a fanciful or funny tale that kept each one of them entertained, even just for a bit. Now, this is aside from the usual bedtime reading, mind you. They wanted stories that seemed to spring from my brain. Oftentimes, they'd ask for a story by name. Tell me the story about the time you and Mommy met. Or tell me the one about me falling down and getting stuck in a bucket. Something along those lines. And there's a sense of comfort in the familiar. Right? We make connections with each other when we tell stories that are relatable in some way. When we put ourselves in the shoes of a story's hero or victim. And have you noticed that too many companies, too many businesses focus on data and specs and details? They forget that people can look up all of these things quite easily as they compare products online. But one thing they can't look up? Emotions. The way a story makes you feel. Stories connect to our emotions in a way that data and facts just can't. Remember, it was Maya Angelou who said, People may forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hey there, and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Now, I missed you last week. You know, Timeless Leadership comes out every other week, and in between that, I do a five-minute show called Storytime, highly appropriate for today's topic. Now, you can only get Storytime if you subscribe through the Timeless and Timely newsletter. I update you there, I provide the audio file, and then you can link it up with your, well, whatever podcast listening device you happen to use. So make sure you check that out. And could you do me a favor as you listen along here, if this is moving you in some way, if you're finding the Timeless Leadership podcast of interest, could you share this episode with the people that you care about? 
It would help other people find the show and help other people be inspired by these leaders that we speak to. And of course, if you would like to reach out to me for any reason, if you want to suggest someone to the show, feel free to email me at timeless at scottmonte.com. In this episode, we're talking with a storyteller extraordinaire, John Livesay, about his new book, The Sale is in the Tale. John Livesay is known as the Pitch Whisperer. He's a keynote speaker who shows companies' sales teams how to turn mundane case studies into compelling case stories so they win more new business. From John's award-winning career at Condé Nast, he shares the lessons he learned that turned sales teams into revenue rock stars. He speaks to and consults with companies in healthcare, technology, insurance, mortgage, food and beverage, real estate, travel, automotive, all of which need storytelling to help boost their sales efforts. John's a guest lecturer on how to leverage the power of storytelling in sales at multiple universities and is also the host of the Successful Pitch podcast. He's been covered by Fortune and Inc., appeared on KTLA TV and on Yahoo Finance on the power of storytelling. John lives in Austin with Peppy, his King Charles Spaniel, who reminds him every day of the importance of belly rubs. John, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Scott, great to be with you as always. It's been a little while since we talked last, but it's nice to see you here. And I am always fascinated when you can get two storytellers together in the same room. Yes, we're never short of conversation or analogies or metaphors, are we? Exactly. So, listen, my first question for you, because I've known you and your reputation for a while, but my first question is, have you always been a storyteller? I would say I've always been fascinated by stories. I used My mom used to read me a bedtime story as a kid, and I would definitely have my favorites and ask her to keep rereading those for me. So that was my first awareness that I was captivated by stories. Is, is there a favorite you can still remember? Oh, it's about a dog. Uh, that's all I remember. My mom would remember the title because she had to see <laughs> me the story so many times. I'm forgetting the title at the moment, but I can see the picture in my head. That's okay. <laughs> hey, picture books are just as important. And the, the yeah. stories that we create in our minds that go along mm-hmm. with them are just as interesting, I think. Indeed. Um, so tell me and, and tell our audience, how did you figure out to incorporate storytelling into the core of your career? Because, I mean, you're known as the pitch whisperer and yes. your, your new book, The Sale is in the Tale, is, is in itself a story. It's a exactly. tale. Um, mm-hmm. but, but how did you actually come to realize that the key to life and everything is really mm-hmm. around stories? Well, I think my first aha moment that people buy emotionally and then back it up with logic was in the 80s when I was selling against IBM in Silicon Valley. And I had a product that was more reliable, less expensive and faster, and people were still not buying it. And they said, listen, if we bring anything that's not IBM in here and it breaks, and it broke a lot back then, um, they're going to point the finger at you, the other vendor, and blame you and I'll get fired. And I was like, oh, there's an emotional 
thing at play here that's way beyond the logic even of something technical. So that was my first insight that I had to tell a story that would allay those fears. And then I worked for an ad agency in Los Angeles. Created, uh, my job was to get clients to let us create their commercials for movies coming out on home video back in the day of Blockbuster. And I really could see that the same movie could be repositioned if it hadn't done well theatrically to get people to go want to, to rent it, depending on what clips. So I really got immersed in the structure of a story and what to tell and um, what sections and the music that goes with it and the voiceover and all those things. And then my 15-year sales career at Condé Nast really zeroed it in when I was selling ads for uh, magazines and the client, Alexis's agency, said, you know, we looked at uh, 15 magazines for this launch. We've uh, narrowed it down to 10, and we're only going to pick five. So you're each invited in for 30 minutes on media day, and do not come in and talk about numbers. And half the reps flipped out. They're like, what? What are you going to talk about if it's not about circulation and my reader's income? And they're like, yeah, we've already analyzed that. That's why you're in the finals. And so I realized I had to tell a story and bring the marketing idea to life in a way that would compel them to want to pick my publication. And now that's my specialty is where your uh, medical company, a tech company, architects have to present uh, in the final two or three and you're given 45 minutes to an hour. What you say in that uh, time frame is the essence of whether you get picked or not, because the hard skills are there. Yeah, I mean, in essence, everything that everyone is selling is a commodity of some sort. Because, look, if they don't choose you, they're going to choose your competitor, right? Correct. So you talk about, in the book, you talk about uh, being or, or separating yourself from a sea of sameness. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Well, so many uh, people think of lawyers and architects and financial advisors and, you know, whatever product you might be selling, you're like, or even not myself as a sales keynote speaker. They're like, there's a lot of us out there. And they're like, you're all the same, aren't you? And so you can feel like you're drowning in a sea of sameness until you tell a story. It becomes your life preserver. And that hook is so important for the meeting after the meeting, Scott, because after everybody hears your pitch and your competitor's pitch, or presentation, whatever you want to call it, uh, they'll have a second meeting and they'll say, well, what do you think? Well, they all sound the same. I guess we should go with the cheapest price. But if you've said something that's a story that they can remember, and my tips on storytelling, your checklist should be, is it clear? You don't want to confuse people with a bunch of acronyms. Is it concise so they can remember it and repeat it for that second meeting after the meeting? And third, is it compelling? Uh, is it tugging at the heartstrings to get people to want to open their purse strings? And if your stories have those three things in it and they're in that meeting deciding which person or product they're going to pick and they can repeat the story you told of someone else you helped that sounds a lot like them, then that's what makes you the winner. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, obviously the three C's, but very easy to uh, to understand there. But uh, connecting the heartstrings to the purse strings. I think that's key. And wh where you, you said they have to imagine themselves in the story or someone like them. I think that yeah. is the key to empathy. And you call out empathy specifically as a storytelling uh, or an attribute of a storyteller. Yes. W what, what does empathy have to do with a good story? 
Well, empathy is part of a formula I've devised, which is empathy, listening, and storytelling. When you have all three of those running together, that's the emotional connection. And we know people buy emotionally and back it up with logic. Some people might have great empathy and they might even be good listeners, but they don't tell a story. And so you need all three to really up your odds of being the one that gets selected. So empathy is a, a, a you know, a leg and a three-legged stool. You know, it's that's important uh, that, because when you describe a problem in the story you're telling, that's where your empathy hat really comes on because you're saying, I understand your problem in such a way that I can describe it so much so that you think to yourself, I've never had the words to put my feelings of what this, the frustrations or the overwhelm or the struggle into words like that. And boy, that really, if you get my problem that much, you probably will have my solution. Yeah. I, I love that, John. And I, I, you know, hearken back to my days at Ford and I, I describe, you know, boardrooms situations that I was in or difficult meetings with a, with a challenging executive and how I felt and how I allayed the fears that they might have. And Mm. I, I relay this in the form of a story and I've told it on your show before. And the, the way people's eyes light up at the end of that story it's great to see that aha moment that such a simple story can bring because they suddenly realize, oh, I'm not the only one dealing with this. Or, hey, now I've got an idea for how to solve my own problems. Mm. Yes, it's we get out of the left brain analytical part of our brain where we're just analyzing numbers. And, you know, you can get into analysis paralysis really quickly. And then that causes you to never, that's why sales cycles get longer and longer. People keep just throwing more information into the fire. But if you tell a story, your brain can synthesize that and say, oh, well, it's so logical. I want to go on that journey. So let's start. And, and you're out of worrying about whether you're making the right decision or not. And that's usually what causes people to not make a decision is they're so afraid of making the wrong one, whether it's hiring someone or buying something. And certainly in my case, as a storytelling keynote speaker, I have to mitigate the risk for the event planners that this is going to make them look good <laughs> picking me and painting that picture of what life is like. Let's you know imagine a week after the event, what are people saying to you? Or what are people, what's, what does the wind look like while I'm speaking? Oh, they're fully engaged. You know, one's on their phone unless they're taking notes on their phone. You know, all those little things um, that people measure that are the soft skills. Yeah. I, and, and I think um, yeah, there's such power in that. And you, you mentioned it a little bit before that the, you know, the meeting after the meeting, mm-hmm. someone's not going to memorize all of your data points. They're not going <laughs> to memorize that. They're never going to know the product or the no. service as well as you, but they're going to remember a simple story with the three C's uh, that, that you mentioned. And they're going to be able in turn to go to their colleagues and repeat the story. Yes. I have a great example of that with a medical tech company they were selling a 4K resolution monitor. And no surprise, they were going in there talking about pixels and they have more pixels than the next person's monitor. Um, And so I asked several questions and helped them craft this little story that imagine how happy Dr. Peterson was at a rural hospital in Minnesota, which is not usually known for cutting edge technology, but they decided to test it. And Brad, the salesperson was in the room with them in case they had any questions 
And this particular operation was on a patient that was overweight and increases the risk for surgery. And because of that, the doctor hit a bleeder and there was a loud gasp in the operating room because to the naked eye, it was just a sea of red. And of course, all the monitors are beeping and, you know, um, people are thinking, how is he going to find the source of that bleeder? And the doctor calmly looked up at the monitor and saw the subtle changes in red between oxygenated blood and non-oxygenated blood. And that's what allowed him to find the source of the bleeder, save the patient's life, and then turned to Brad the rep and said, you know, we don't always need a monitor like this, but boy, when we need it, we need it. Now Brad tells that story to another doctor at another hospital and the doctor sees themselves in the, the story so much, they go, oh, uh, I want your monitor too. Because nobody wants to be caught with, you know, the proverbial pants down in that situation, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Um, but you'll see the descriptiveness of that story, a gasp. It's a sea of red to the naked eye. All of those details pull you into the story. And the key here, Scott, as you know, is that the hero of the story is not the sales rep, but the doctor. Exactly. And, and the rep and the equipment is just like a Yoda or a Sherpa helping the doctor get to the outcome that they seek. Yeah, the enabling technology, uh, literally mm -hmm. that in that case. Mm -hmm. So um, your, your formula, storytelling, listening, empathy. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, these are three hallmarks of leadership. And I mean, mm -hmm. you think about a leader that you know, yes. um, they, they typically have all three of those things. And then there's another element that you talk about that I think is closely tied to all of those. And maybe it's part of the result, but I'd like to get your take on it. And that is trust. Mm. Yes. It's so important because the old way of getting someone to buy something from you is, well, they have to know, like, and trust you. We've heard that phrase for decades. Um, the problem with that belief system, Scott, is it causes the behavior of, no, you have to get to know me. Let me push more data out to you, more information. Let me send you one more piece of facts about me or my company that's just going to tip the scales in our favor. And it has to start with trust. So it's really a primal thing where it's a fight or flight response. That's where the handshake came from to show we didn't have a weapon in our hand. Uh, and so, you know, warm referrals are so great because they reduce any uh, trust issues of, is this safe to talk to this person? Oh yeah, they know Scott. I'm happy to talk to them then. Um, so when you start with the gut of, is this email spam? Is it going to ruin my computer if I open it? All those things are happening all the time. So we have to build trust first. And in a virtual world, that starts with good lighting, believe it or not. There's all this research that People have to see the space between our eyes to trust us. So really? if, you're, mm -hmm, if you're sitting in front of a window that's keeping your face dark, like you look like you're in the witness protection program for a reason. Um, so we, you know, let people see your face and your eyes in particular in order to build trust, because that's again, that fight or flight response that has to be tamed. That's really interesting. And well, you know, this is an audio podcast, so I'm afraid we're kind of out of luck. But uh, <laughs> I can see you right now as we're recording. So that that, that matters a great deal. Um, so we, we've talked about empathy. We've, we've talked about trust. Um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to telling 
stories. You've, you've actually taken a couple of phrases that everybody knows, and, and we'll, let's tackle them one at a time. Okay. Um, everybody's heard of an elevator pitch. Yes. But you don't call it an elevator pitch. What do you call it, and why do you call it something different? Well, Scott, let's you and I decide right at this very moment, we're going to kill the elevator pitch. R.I.P. Uh, they're boring, they're robotic, and nobody remembers them. So let's turn it into an elevator story. And most people, when they're at a cocktail party or an elevator and someone says, oh, what do you do? They go right to what they do. I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant, I'm an architect, I'm a coach, a speaker, whatever. I have a f- short five-step process that we don't even get to what you do until the fourth step. So the first step is so easy. It's the phrase we use time and again, which is, you know how this winter was endless and it just was so cold or whatever. That's how we talk to our friends. So the whole goal of an elevator story is to intrigue someone and say, you know, that's interesting, Scott, tell me more. So you have a conversation. Uh, So you know how is the first step. The second step is literally describing who you help. And the more specific you are, I help tech and healthcare sales teams who, okay, now we need to have a picture of who that is. Uh, Then the third step is what is their problem? They're struggling to not drown in a sea of sameness and be seen as a commodity. And they're tired of coming in second place when they pitch against competitors. Boom, we understand that problem. Fourth step, who you are. I'm known as the pitch whisperer. I teach people how to tell stories that make them irresistible. And after hearing my talk or reading my books, they become revenue rock stars. And then the fifth step is the outcome after working with you or buying from you. So there's all kinds of little seeds in there to intrigue people enough. Wait, I know what a dog whisperer is. I even know what a horse whisperer is. What the heck is a pitch whisperer? And how did you get that name? Well, I have a story ready to go of how I got called the pitch whisperer by Inc. Magazine. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's one of the, the great things. Uh, and and uh, Eric Qualman, who wrote the uh, foreword for your book, mentions this too. Having mm-hmm. a, uh, a quiver full of stories, as it were, that you can yeah. pull out given any circumstance. Uh, talk about this jukebox approach to uh, storytelling. Yes. Well, for people our age, we know what a jukebox is where you push a button and a um, and a number and a song comes up. For the younger people out there, you think of it as a playlist. I've had to update my references. So whether it's a jukebox or a playlist and you're getting songs, we want to think of your brain like that. And then instead of a song coming up, the right story comes up. So once you've understood the structure of how to tell a great story, you need at least three to four in your toolbox. Um, I was speaking to Berkshire Hathaway's real estate division. And I said, you know, there's usually three to four main reasons why people sell their home. Um, They had a kid, they need a bigger house. Um, Somebody died or they're getting divorced. I mean, those kinds of things, right? Or it's a starter house. So you need to have a case story for each one of those scenarios that you got a listing and had a great outcome for so that when someone's interviewing you to get that listing, you have the right story that they see themselves in. So it's not the same story over and over again. That's that's really interesting. So l- let me take it a step further, John. Uh, when you're around, say, say when you're around a CEO, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're a member of his or her team, and they pull out the same stories again and again. Is that detrimental or is that something that works in their favor? Well, first of all, I think it depends on whether the CEO is a good storyteller or not. 
because if we are listening to somebody tell the same story again and it's a good story and they're good at telling it, then we don't mind hearing it more than once. Now, there's a lot of support for telling the company story in such a way that it reminds people of why you have those values. Mm. And certainly new hires need to hear that story and people need to be reminded of it. But I think like any situation, you can update your story with another example. So if the core structure of the story is why this company, you know, one of your values is in action, then have an example of it. For example, um, you know, there was a tech company that was always having people, allowing people to work from home. But when the pandemic hit, so that one of their, you know, core values is flexibility. But when the pandemic hit, people said, this is not just me working at home. My kids aren't at school. And they said, you know what? The first Zoom meeting, we're going to let everyone bring their kids to Zoom instead of kids to work because you haven't figured out childcare yet. And so that showed the values in action and empathy on top of it. So updating your story a little bit, if you're the CEO telling that story, um, that keeps the story fresh. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, you know, we, we had a, a great storyteller in chief at Ford Motor Company in the guise of Alan Mulally. And he would, obviously, he went all around the world. He experienced a lot of different things, but there were some core stories uh, that he would go back to over and over again. And you loved hearing them because, I mean, you know how it turns out. You know that he ends up at the company, but hearing the way he tells it, his observations, his <laughs> wry humor. And one of those was how he got to the company in the first place. It was his story of origin at yes. Ford Motor Company. Well, what, what's so important and intriguing about origin stories? Well, if you think about yourself as a child, I would bet money that there's a 90% chance that you ask your parents, how did you meet? Tell me about your wedding day. Um, or, you know, tell me what happened when I got born, right? You, everyone wants to hear their own origin story. Were you at the hospital, dad? Were you waiting a long time? Did you get told to go out for lunch? And then I came out and you missed it. You know, it doesn't, what, so it's literally in our DNA. We want to know how our parents got together. We want to know what happened on our birth, uh, moment. And was it easy? Was it long? You know, I was born on December 22nd. Back then, my mom was still in the hospital on Christmas. She was not happy about that. Um, you know, so I hear all those details. They're like, they tried to cheer me up with a little Christmas napkin and it didn't work. I wanted to be home. You know, I was like, sorry. Uh, so the story of origins separate us from that sea of, of sameness. When I was working with an architecture firm, um, they were up to renovate an airport and the stakes were quite high. Whoever got it was a billion dollars. And they were told, we're going to hire the firm we like the most because the final three could all do the work. And that's when they brought me in. They're like, we really are stuck here. We don't even know where to start. And I said, well, let's start with the team slide. That's the most important slide. They go, it is? Yes, based on that criteria. So they kept thinking it was going to be one of their designs. Um, and I said, what are you going to say? Well, you know, my name is Bob. I've been here 20 years. I do blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no. Um, Bob, what made you become an architect? Oh, I was 11 years old. I played with Legos. Now I have a son that's 11. I still play with Legos with him. I have that same passion I did as a kid. All right, Sue, where were you before here? Um, I was in the Israeli army. Okay, but you learned about focus and discipline. And since you're in charge, if you win this award project of keeping this thing on time and under budget, 
then you've got the perfect background. Those little story of origins made them win in addition to the case story they told because the client went, oh, we get, we get a sense of who these people are and we would like to spend the next five or six years working with them. I, I, I really love that. And it's kind of a, a, a side angle for, you know, why I do Timeless and Timely as a newsletter is because I like to think about human origin stories. Where have we come from as a species? Where, sure. what, what has the last 3,000 years of human history taught us, right? Because if you don't know where you've come from, it's kind of hard to tell people where you're going, right? And I think the origin stories are very much the same. And there's all this research now that fascinates me that those people who have a sense of their family history, two or three generations back, are much less likely to get depressed than those who don't have any foundation. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. You, you know, know, you're brought up, you're like, you know, for gosh sake, you're a Monty. Act yeah. like what, right? <laughs> right? You know, you're a family, you've got a legacy behind you. Uh, it's in your DNA to be resilient and you have that to fall back on. Well, funny you should mention that, John. Um, I traditionally have grown up really understanding the immigrant story of my family. You go back a couple of generations. I had great grandparents that came over from Poland. I had great grandparents that came over from Scotland. It's an odd combination. Um, however, I posted a picture of my grandfather on Facebook about a month ago. And from out of the blue, an old uh, colleague from one of my literary groups who happened to have been an undertaker for his career. Mm. So he has a, an unholy interest in genealogy. Ah. He took my grandfather's name, plugged it into Ancestry.com or one of these places, and he got back to me and he goes, hey, do you know that you're a descendant of John Alden? And I go, Ooh. John Alden? I said, I know Alden's shoes. Why am I blanking on John Alden? So I went to Google. John Alden, he came over on the Mayflower. Wow. I'm like, okay, I have never known. For mm. all of the family stories that we've had, I've never known that I'm a Mayflower descendant. And That's just as you say, that kind of puts a different perspective on things. And now I'm even more interested in finding out more about this origin story and what happened to people along the way. Well, I think if you think of the people who were on the Mayflower and the other ships, those were risk takers. And so that might not be a trait that you instantly think about it in yourself, but you're like, Oh, I, a, I come from a long line of risk takers and, and rule breakers a little bit. So um, it's not just the prestige of, you know, the early heritage, which is, you know, certainly lauded more on the East Coast than in the West Coast. There, Everybody loves to know, you know, where your family came from. Um, but, th you know, that sense of history grounds us in our own story yeah. and makes us feel connected to... I come from a legacy and what kind of legacy am I leaving? Which, you know, when you are confronted with your own mortality, whether it's someone in your family dying or whatever your first as an adult uh, experience with death, you start to think of your own mortality and then you're like, what kind of legacy am I leaving? And that's what spurs a lot of us to create books or uh, music or whatever it is that we are suddenly shifting and zooming out, as I like to say, like a movie director does, and you zoom out to 3,000 years of history um, and get that perspective because that's the real 
secret, I think, to being resilient. And that's where I came up with that 555 method that I'm so thrilled so many people are able to remember and use. Yeah, that was one of the other elements I wanted you uh, to, to talk about, the 555 rule or the 555 method. Uh, it, it, explain to us a little bit about uh, how we should think about our story or our situations with 555. Yeah. You know, um, whenever Nora Ephron, who was a famous screenwriter, would have something challenging happen to her, she goes, it's all copy. You know, she was thinking of it in terms of a story for a movie. And I think if we think of ourselves as movie directors and something's going on, we're like, eh, how's that going to, am I going to be a, tell a story about this? So, you know, we all get cut off in traffic. It's just part of being human. Some people flip out, other people let it go. And that was my first aha of like, look how different they react to the same situation. And so if we are a movie director, we can zoom out and say, you know, will this matter five minutes from now? No, I've forgotten that somebody cut me off in traffic. But how about something bigger happens? You get disappointed or somebody lets you down or you get a no in sales or whatever. How about five hours from now? And then five days from now. And if you zoom out to five days, the majority of things that we get so upset about in the moment are not going to matter five days from now. But we need to be able to zoom out to that and have that perspective. So People are now emailing me going, you know, I have something frustrating happened, but I 555 didn't, I let it go. Um, I was giving a talk and someone was um, introducing the CEO before I was to get up and speak and they had a nosebleed and they were, it was bleeding so much they had to leave stage and go backstage and deal with it. And one of the people that was helping them said he was so embarrassed and frustrated and, you know, nerves. And, and she said, we got to 555 this. So you got to calm down and get back up there. And so it's fascinating to hear how people are zooming out and because being resilient is the secret because we cannot be fully present for the next situation, whether it's a sales situation or not, if we're still talking about something that happened to us five hours ago or five days ago. I love that. And you know what makes it even better, John, in all of the traditional uh, television and movie productions, when people used to share phone numbers, it was usually... KL5, 555, oh. right? So in some ways, this 555 is a call we're making to ourselves to have yes. a conversation yes. within our head about what does this really mean? Is it really that important? Should it shake me to my core or should it just be a blip that I can get over? And, you know, if you still are upset five days from now for something really tragic happens, um, you can do it again. How about five weeks, five months, five years from now? I wish I had this tool, uh, Scott, when my dad died, because I could go back to my younger self and say, listen, you're still going to miss him five years from now, but I promise you, you won't be this sad five years from now. The grief will diminish, but yeah. when you're in it, it's really hard to imagine you're ever going to not feel that yeah. pain. So, do the first five, you know, five, five. And then if something really big has happened, take it out to five years and you'll be amazed at, oh, okay, right, right, right. Five years from now, odds are I'll, I'll be functioning in a better place. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's great to remember. Well, I mentioned uh, there were two uh, phrases that you, uh, you ch switched up a little bit and you mentioned one of them in passing, the other one. Uh, and that is you've, you've changed from case studies to case uh, yeah. stories. So first of all, on brand for you. So good. Um, <laughs> but what's the difference between a case study and a case um, story? Well, the word study and case study sounds like homework to me and I'm already asleep. So, uh, 
And we've heard, again, it's, it's been around for decades. Let me show you a case study. And you're like, oh God, really? Um, it's going to be full of facts and figures. Um, and there's not going to be, so it, a case story has the four parts of a story that take you on a journey um, and are entertaining, hopefully at the same time and a little bit of drama. Um, so the case story I gave you of the 4K resolution monitor, as opposed to a case study of, you know, hospitals have gotten a lot more um, good outcomes after using our resolution monitor. You know, that's a case study. But the case story of actually feeling like you're in the moment with the person. And that's another secret of good stories. When you tell dialogue, say it in the present tense. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's so important. Um, you know, and I've got two two things for you uh, related to that. One, um, there's a, a regular daily podcast that I listen to now called History Daily. And it's done in such a wonderful way of storytelling. It, it, it brings you into the moment. It invents dialogue. So, okay, it's not completely historically accurate, but it's faithful, right? And it uses that present kind of dialogue to really suck yes. you in. So highly recommend uh, History Daily. Mm. The other uh, thing is I have a story about case studies that you you might be interested in. And yes. I, I don't know if I told this to you when I was on your show, but years ago when I was working for a B2B ad agency, we had a biotech client. They were early stage. They were really trying to break apart. And this from the, from the class, the, that sea of sameness as mm -hmm. it were. And this would have been in, gosh, late 2005, early 2006, mm -hmm. right? And the standard ad agency approach is, oh, we'll build you a landing page or a website. We'll put together a white paper, blah, blah, blah. So I said, we were in one of our client calls and I said to them, have you ever thought of yourselves as thought leaders? And I go, huh, well, I guess we are. I mean, we're cutting edge on a lot of this stuff and we'd like to be known as thought leaders, but how do you do that? I said, well, I think it's less about tooting your own horn than it is surrounding yourself with other great people, with mm -hmm. other people that have stories to tell. Wouldn't it be amazing if you guys could be the first in your industry to start a podcast where you interview other scientists, other companies, and, oh, by the way, you're there because you know about all this stuff and you're, you're facilitating the conversation, but it really becomes about them rather than about you. You get the thought leadership by association on this brand new platform called podcasting. Uh -huh. What do you think? And... I'll never forget this. The woman on the other end of the line said, but do you have a case study you can show me? And I'm like, lady, the, by definition, is, you're not going to have one. Right. right. Exactly. So I go, uh, this is like months old. You know, uh, do you want to read a case study or do you want to be a case study? Ooh, that's a great one. And she goes, I want to read a case study. <laughs> That's a, that's the risk factor. She clearly did not come. Right. Her family did not come from the Mayflower. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I left that agency. <laughs> yeah. No, because that's that safe choice again. Right. Don't buy anything but all IBM. It is a, the behaviors don't change decade to decade, especially in corporate America. People like to make safe choices. They're afraid of being fired. Or, and of course, no innovation comes from that kind of thinking or behavior. Um, you know, podcasts have helped so many clients, even big companies, start to get relationships. I worked with an architecture firm 
And I said, you're bringing me in, you know, a few weeks before you go to present. Um, and you're going in cold. You don't really know these people. They go, yeah, a lot of the brokers are doorkeepers. We don't get to talk to them. I said, but if you had your own podcast and could interview people six months to a year before the RFP proposal request comes out and you could ask them what keeps you up at night and get some sense of what their criteria is before you would have an insight that other people wouldn't. So they have taken that advice and are using that podcast almost as a Trojan horse to get relationships going with people before they need them. I think that's brilliant. And besides, uh, who's going to say no when you approach someone and say, would you like to be on my podcast? Especially if it's a well-known company and it's well-produced and all that good stuff. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I feel like we've covered uh, various elements of, of, of what you've got here. We've covered the elevator story, the story yeah. of origin, uh, company stories, case stories, uh, the playlist. I mean, that that's really a well-rounded, uh, and, and again, it's, five in number for those of you who have been counting uh, for, for our five, five, five fans out there. Um, but what I love most about your book, John, is how you have taken your own medicine or eaten your own dog food, whatever the cliche happens to be. And you've turned a, a, a series of you know, what could be pretty dry lessons about you must have an origin story, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And you've actually turned it into a narrative, a nine part narrative. So, I mean, obviously you're, you're inspired by your own work, but would, talk with me a little bit about the process you went through to come up with those specific characters and that kind of setup in mind. Well, one of the things that inspired me was the musical Hamilton. And I was speaking at the Coca-Cola CMO summit and they took us to see the play. And then I got to be the last speaker at the end of the two day event and reference it since we'd all seen it together. And there's a scene in that musical where his wife is so angry at him for having an affair and she's ripping up all the love letters. And she literally says, I'm writing you out of my narrative. And I said to all the CMOs, how many clients, customers have bad experiences and write you out of their narrative? They're never going back to your restaurant or movie theater again. And I thought that is the essence of why this play is so successful. It's tugging. And there's so many multiple stories within the stories. And so he took history and turned it into something emotional and imagined conversations like your favorite podcast about history. And so I thought, if I craft a fable, a story about storytelling, and I said it here in Austin where I now live for the last two years, it's almost a love letter to Austin in the same thing and where I mentioned specific places. And I had to write down the character's name. So I'd be like, okay, there's a lead character, Ben. He's got a best friend, Diane, who's his mentor. Then he's got a sister named Barbara and she's married to this guy and they have a daughter named Claire. So I had to graphically, because I'm very visual, draw the spoke of the lead character and then all the other names and who's, you know, the sub, you know, title or, you know, the sub stories, you know, the subplots that are going on within all that and keep that, make sure that the reader could follow up. And what's been amusing to me is uh, more than one occasion, people have either wrote or said to me, oh, I thought Ben and Diane would get together. And I, and I think to myself, it's not that kind of story, 
but I'm glad you cared enough about them to want that to happen. Or maybe that would be too obvious if they did, but it doesn't matter to me. The fact is they're in the story and that's the whole goal. It, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I was wondering if the story was going to take that twist at the end. Uh-huh. So it, it, it really, you did a great job of building these relationships, how Ben looked out for Diane and oh. brought her up with him. Uh, spoiler mm. alert for those of you who are going to read the book. Um, yeah, I think you did a really good job with character development, with dialogue, with everything that a really good story should be. Oh, thanks. And I consciously made them not get together. I want to show you can have friendships that don't have to be romanticized to have that kind of caring for each other in the workplace. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a tale as old as time, isn't it? Uh, well, yes. the book is The Sail is in the Tale, Five Storytelling Secrets to Keep from Drowning in a Sea of Sameness by John Livesay. John, thank you so much for spending time with us here on Timeless Leadership. Thanks. And I have a little gift for anybody uh, listening to your show. If you text the word pitch, P-I-T-C-H, to 66866, you can get the first chapter for free to see if it compels you to want to know what happens next. That's fantastic. I'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Great. Thank you. You'll always get someone's attention when you tell them a story. It's up to you to hone your own storytelling style, but know this, once you connect with people on an emotional level, it's a whole new story. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, for you are a leader.